I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow, and this week's guest is the writer and showrunner Candice Carty-Williams. Candice worked in publishing as a marketing executive before becoming a literary sensation. Queenie, her 2019 debut, was a bestseller. Critics and readers loved it. And Candice won several awards, including Book of the Year at the Nibbies. Fast forward to 2023, and Candice is now taking on TV. She's a showrunner, the creative force behind two big series, Champion, a drama that celebrates black British music and the much-anticipated dramatisation of her debut novel, Queenie. Candice is just 33. Age should never be a barrier to success, but her achievements are impressive. And I can't wait to find out more. Candice, you're a South Londoner. You live and build your fictional worlds here. What do you love most about it? I think it's the only place I know. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like I go to other places in London, I go to other places across the world, but South London is the only place that I really take, I, I guess I take in all the time. And I've been taking it in for what, 33 years? So it's like, yeah, this is what I know. And I, I always want to be authentic in my work. And I feel like if I started to try and write about East London or North London or Wales, I'd have to research. And I feel like when you research, you lose something between what is the thing and what you love about the thing. And with South London, I try not to present facts. I try just to present the world that I see and the world that I know. I think that'll chime with a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I'm a North Londoner. Oh. Um, and <laughs> That's no, okay. I, I don't really know any other area as, as intimately. Yeah. And so I understand precisely what you're saying. From what I've read, it sounds like your secondary school failed you, although you seem to have well made up for it. But you became a voracious reader and got better A-levels than predicted. Were books your education as well as a refuge? Uh, yeah. They also, just to say that my school, which is Haberdasher's Asks Hatcham College in New Cross, they removed me from the Wikipedia. And I was like, that feels mean, I think, to have failed me even later in my life. 
But no. How extraordinary. I know. Maybe someone will put it back, hopefully, because I did With go there. With pride, I would hope. <laughs> yeah, Heaven preserves. around it. How many other um, achievers are there at your level? Goodness. I mean, no, that's I mean, something. Yeah, you know, there's, like, there's a handful of us, but I'd like to be there. So yeah, books for sure. That was what I did. I remember reading a book a day when I was at school and I would be reading all through class. I'd be reading under the table. I'd be reading in the library at lunchtime. I'd be reading on the way home, like walking home, reading a book. And I would not want to finish the book. So I would pretend that I had like a stomachache when I was at home at night and I would sit in the bath and I would read and read and read until I fell asleep. I have no idea why I was so invested or locked in. I just love stories and I loved being transported to somewhere else and I was really good at just completely switching off and just being like I'm in these pages and I'm in this world and really caring about the characters and feeling them and just being I think I just I must have wanted to be them I think I must have wanted to be anywhere but where I was and so I was like these people are me this is the world that I'm in now and is the me still the me that was discovered then I think so yeah because I love stories I love stories more than anything and actually as I've got older social media kind of fragments the way that we receive information and obviously our attention spans are shot to pieces but you can still find a story in a tweet or you can find a story in even your friends I find and I love I'm so drawn to people who tell these really long winding rambling stories Mm. because I'm so absorbed in what a story does to people and what it means you weren't a disruptive force at school as far as I can detect you just had a questioning mind is this still true of you today I really hope it wasn't curbed do you know what I ask a lot of questions yeah and the other day I asked a friend a question and the way that he replied to me he was like a bit suspicious and I was like oh sorry just so you know I ask a lot of questions in a probing way not in a verification way so I'm not asking because I'm trying to trip you up or trying to get an answer I know I have no idea I just ask a lot and he was like oh okay that makes sense because I do I ask questions constantly and sometimes I apologize because I'm like it's really quite irritating but I just need to make sure I build a proper picture of everything Because I think sometimes things get lost in subtext or you have your own story running through your head. And so it's like, yeah, what is that? I always want to know everything about the world and what I'm doing and the people that I'm talking to or that I'm engaging with. It's the essence of understanding. Yeah, 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 for sure. And actually of good journalism. Exactly. You have to... Always questioning. Always questioning, yeah. Do you feel any sense of vindication or even anger having succeeded when you weren't encouraged? Maybe both. Because... Without the belief and encouragement of others, you have to find that within yourself. You know, I was thinking about this actually weirdly yesterday, and I realised that I work hard to prove... I think I work hard to prove a lot of people wrong. And I, even in my family, I remember, it's, you know, people going, it's not that sad, but it kind of, well, it was what it was. But I remember my granddad, he pointed at a picture when I was in my 20s of me at my graduation, and he said, you will never do anything beyond that you will never be as good as that again. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I think I've just worked so hard to prove everyone, even in my family, wrong and just be like, no, 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 I can. I can do stuff. I am smart. And so, yeah, it's been like from childhood. So I'm like, yeah. It's as if you had rocked the boat. Yes. In a way, he glimpsed this extraordinary woman that you are. Yeah. And and had to work around and dismiss it. Yeah. And then it was strange because my family would always be like, oh, don't mind him. It's because you remind him of his mother-in-law. And I was like, I mean, I'm a kid. <laughs> Why are you making excuses? But yeah, so I think because of that, I was like, I'm going to work really hard. And in my life, I think when I've come across that, I've never believed it. I've just been like, this is how I'm going to prove you 
wrong. So I think a lot of my drive comes from me being like, I'm going to show you, actually. Is he still with us? And if he is, has he changed his mind about you? Yeah, he has. I didn't speak to him, obviously. Um, and everyone's always like, oh, please. And I'm like, no, it was too many years of just being told I was rubbish. But apparently he does. Apparently he's, he keeps saying my name. And it's like, well, that's what happens when you, when you do that. Could he apologise? I don't think he would. I think it would. I don't think he would. I think it would be a case of just being like, let's pretend nothing ever happened, but I'm not that person. So not worth investing in that. No, exactly. When you started out working in publishing, you didn't like what you saw or how you felt, but you did something about it. Can you tell me about the short story prize that you launched? Yes, of course. When I did get into publishing via internships, I looked around and I was like, okay, so I'm here, which is great, but I can't see really any books that are talking about my experience or the experience of the people that I know and love and have grown up with or the community that I'm from or the spaces that I'm in. And I was like, okay, how do I do that? And I've always had like quite an analytical mind and I'm good at connecting things. And I was like, well, I just obviously need to get the stories but how do I get the stories if people have agents and all of those things and I was like okay let's remove the agents and I basically was like a short story prize means people can just send us stories and there we go I get stories we all get stories which is great because that's what I love and then it took off from there and it was a case of me sort of pitching it but everyone in my office was like yeah okay do what you want they liked me I liked it there and that's when your life sort of began to change I think I recognized I think the publishing industry were like, oh, was like, who's this? Like, what, who's this girl? Like, what's going on here? And I was the only black girl in the office, but not in a way that I ever felt isolated or I ever felt like I was the. But I was aware of it myself. But no one ever made me feel that way. But I, I definitely started making ripples in that industry and getting noticed. And then I think with that, I was always like, okay, what else can I do? And so that's when I was like, if you write a book, you can ride the wave of people knowing who you are and what you can do and what you want to do. And I definitely recognised where that book needed to go. And I wrote Queenie. And I think that was the thing that was, okay, there you go. You've arrived now. You've mentioned Queenie. So let's just look at what happened. Because, yes. you know, writing a book, A, is you no mean achievement. But Queenie was a total breakthrough. I mean, the crits loved it, critics. What happened? <laughs> I applied to a, a writer's retreat that was organised and run by Jojo Moyes. And it was in a cottage next to her house. Uh, applied for that, didn't think I'd get it. But kind of explained that what I wanted to do was just write something that represented me and people like me because I was sort of gagging for it. And then a few months later, I got an email that was like, OK, yeah, do you want to come like next week? And I was like, oh, OK. So I borrowed a friend's car, having never driven on the motorway. But you can imagine... <laughs> I just do what I need to do. And I drove there and then I just started writing and all of this stuff just came out. And even on the way there, I didn't know who this girl was, but I knew I wanted to write it as first person experience because I wanted people to be able to see and to sympathise with this person who was never going to be like, oh, racism, 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 the world, prejudice. But someone who was like, I'm giving you my lived experience and you can see what I'm going through. I don't have to tell you. You can just see it's all there. And she didn't even have a name, actually, for the first few months. She was just X because I just didn't know what she would be called. I, I was like, she needs to have a name that's really important, really significant and memorable. And I sat down with my mum and I was like, mum, what name would you give a girl? That she might think is a bit naff and a bit, uh, but like, it's a good name. And she was like, Queenie. And I was like, all right, yeah, that works. And then that was it. And then I just sort of put it in and I was like, yeah, it all made sense to me. And then, yeah, what happened next? I have an incredible agent, Joe Unwin, incredibly supportive. 
And Queenie was rejected by, I think, 10 publishers, maybe 10. And that was because they were like, no one's going to read this. Uh, What was it? It wasn't funny enough. No one cares about South London in that way. Um, We don't have anyone black working here, so no one could market it. There was just like a really long list of reasons why Queenie was never going to work. But then it did, which was really great. So it's always nice to see those people when I'm out. Do you know why it worked? I think it worked because it was an authentic story. She's definitely got the essence of me, but in different situations. And also, I think she takes a lot more shit than I would. I'm not that sort of person. I'm a lot scrappier than she is. She's a lot, I guess, a lot kinder, a bit more naive than I am. But she has my energy. She has my feelings, a lot of my feelings. And so, yeah, I think because of that, and I think because it's quite chaotic, I think a lot of people like to talk about it. And as much as people loved it, I know a lot of people found Queenie very frustrating and found her very hard to read, but they loved it. And I was like, well, yeah, guys, that's what makes a good book. Come on. Like, (laughs) you know, she can't be perfect. And I loved writing her because she was a mess. And it's so fun to lean into that. Well, you knew the industry. You knew your book. Just how much control did you get in its promotion? Oh, all. I'm very lucky. Yeah, because I think because I worked in the industry... Everyone at the publishing house was like, well, you know what you're doing, so let's do it with you, let's talk to you. I mean, how many black women authors had they published at that point? Oh my gosh, I can't imagine many. Maybe, no. I think probably less than a handful yeah. at that point. And so, and you were a bit of a handful anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I still am actually, they would say that, they would definitely say that now. And so, yeah, so they were like, let's go along for the ride with it. And they ran everything past me. And, you know, the cover, I think, was one of the most iconic things about it. And they gave me four covers. It's things like that that I was like, you know... Talk to me about those covers, though. What was the choice? So the image came from my American editor, actually, who's this tiny little, how can I say it, like waspy rock chick who lives in, like, New Jersey called Alison Callahan. She's really cool. And she'd briefed this cover... And she came over from the States and she was like, I'm just going to show you this quickly. You might not like it. And she showed me and I was like, oh my goodness, because it was the first time I felt like I'd really been properly seen mm. in any industry. And she heard what I said and she went and found it for me. And that's incredible. And so the UK publisher were like, okay, cool, we can't compete with that. Let's take it on. And then there was this idea of Queenie in the... Last pages of the novel, she starts counting colours as a way to cope. And so one of the marketers was like, let's do different coloured proofs. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. No one's done that before. And then my editor was like, right, forget it. Let's just do the covers like that. We'll figure it out. So I was really lucky to work with the team who were like, let's do things we haven't done before because we've got an author that we haven't had before. Did you feel you had control over the book? I really did. In a way that TV is very different, I had a lot of control over my writing. Because also it's just me. I'm not trying to, you know, with TV, you are writing for network approval. You're writing for production approval. You're writing so many different types of approval. But presumably that approval was coming from essentially white people. Yes. I I mean, it all is still, all the time. And did they think that this book was going to be consumed by white readers? Or did they think, ah, this is a way into the black community? I think it was both. I think they were like, we found something that everyone should read. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I think they were really keen on that. That was really important to them. And they were like, we need to reach out to every kind of audience. This isn't about us just saying, read this black girl's book. It's about black people also being like, hello, we've also got a voice for you here. What was the year of publication? 2019. And that was a big year. No. Uh, Queenie changed your life, obviously. I mean, Mm. this this book changed your life completely. Did you ever imagine that your book would have such an impact 
that you would end up adapting this novel for television? No, I didn't. I, I can't, you yeah. never saw it visually within your head? No, I didn't. I think I always have a plan for things. I knew that the book would be... My plan, you know, my plan was for the book to be well received, and obviously, I wanted it to have a mainstream readership rather than be published quite quietly. Um, so that was really good. So I was like, okay, there's that plan. And then when TV came knocking, I was like, I mean, I guess sure. And then seven years later, I've just finished on set watching it be adapted, which is a very strange feeling. But you know, this stuff takes a long time. But also, yeah, never in my plans. But when it came, it was a welcome thing because I like to learn and I like to expand and grow and TV I felt was a good way to do that for this book and to get her story out to different people via a different medium. Did you ever have to pinch yourself and say hey this is happening to me? I think no because the work was so hard I was like oh this is happening to me do you know (laughs) what I mean a different kind of this is happening to me. Exhaustion emotional? Oh my god all the time all the time because I've realized I've just been working since I was 25. I loved working in books. I loved working in a publishing house. And then suddenly I was working for myself. And that's 24 7. Mm. You just never stop doing that. Whereas in publishing, I'd be able to get into the office at half past nine and then leave at half past five or do an event and then get home at like 10. And then that was it. But with this, I was working on the way here to you and I'll be working as soon as I leave here, you know? And it's like every single day. It's extraordinary. It's exhausting. It is. It is. You spoke of feelings of both pride and sadness. The Queenie won Book of the Year at the Nibbies. Mm. It, it was a historic victory, but one that was far too long in coming. I mean, can you see any signs that attempts to improve publishing are substantial and are sustainable? Do you know, I'm seeing lots of amazing authors coming through. That's one of the keys. But I think another one of the keys, and perhaps the most important key, is that there are non-white people working in the publishing houses because they're the ones who are pulling these books through and they're the ones who are able to represent them and work on them and bat for them and back them because obviously books are it's it's a competitive space within a publishing house so it's like you know how am I going to make sure that sales are championing my book and you need someone who is like I know this book I love this book and this is why um and so it's that and also having black-led or South Asian-led imprints to push these books through is really important too. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
You're working in television now, not just as a writer. You're a showrunner, and this is a big project. Music performances, filming locations in Jamaica. What does the job involve? Are you the boss of everyone or, or the boss of all creative decisions? It's the latter. Everyone always says that you're my boss and I'm like, I'm not your boss. But I don't want to be anyone's boss. But I like being the boss of the creative. That's important to me. And so like, yeah, when you're a showrunner, you are writing, you are leading a writer's room. You are then taking all those scripts away and you're being like, okay, they all have to have the same voice. There is that. And then you are on set and you are writing on set. You are writing constantly. You're writing when production is finished. You're writing until the show is on the television, but also decisions around music, decisions around design, carpets, logos that people have on their clothes. Like you are on top of every single thing. And I like that because I am a control freak. So it's quite nice. If something's gone wrong, it's my fault. I can blame myself, not blame anyone else. Um, and so, yeah, it's a really big undertaking and you have to put everything aside. And you're also very fortunately, very visual. You clearly see things in full technicolor Yes. And it shines through from your books, but it's also terribly useful when you start looking at films. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I've been really lucky to work with some amazing directors and DOPs who kind of share the vision and enhance the vision. Now, the Jamaica episode, as you say, I worked with an incredible duo, Caleb Femi, who was a director, and Adam Barnett, who's a DOP. And I've never felt so seen or understood by sort of two men in my life who would always be like, are you happy? If you're not happy, then we can make you happy. And the point was to create something, but also with me as a showrunner. Mm. Um, and that was a very different experience because it can be quite isolating because also a lot of it is you saying to a director, this isn't working. And then usually being quite annoyed by that and you having to have a really thick skin and be like, it's not personal. It's just that we're on episode four and it's not going to correspond with what's happening episode eight. So it's difficult. It's a difficult relationship, that one. And I don't imagine they were used to having that said to them. No, never. Um, and that could be difficult too. There were some repercussions of that that were quite nasty. And that's Such kind as... of having, I, I had, um, I was screamed at by one of the directors, screamed, he screamed in my face for about five minutes in front of the entire crew. Difficult. How was that cured? Um, he was let go from the project. Well, you won, didn't you? I mean, I didn't. You know, you don't win when it's that kind of situation. Yeah. You yeah. know. Did you have any ambitions to move into TV or was it an opportunity that simply came to you and that you ran with? It was one that came and I like a challenge, as mm -hmm. you can probably tell. <laughs> and I like to learn and I love TV. TV is one of my great loves. Music videos, I think, are sort of my number one love but tv i think is a really amazing medium space and of course i love seeing how people talk about tv and i feel like you can fall into such amazing community so like the bear is one of the most incredible tv shows that has garnered such incredible following of really passionate viewers and it's nice to feel like you are in something with someone and i think tv does that and i wanted to i guess play a part in creating something that people could have that same feeling and I'd seen, it's not the same, but I'd seen Black Panther. I saw it on its opening day in the UK at Peckhamplex Cinema. And the noise that came up from the audience at the end of that, I just remember thinking, I want to make people feel like that. And if I can do that, that's collective, isn't it? Whereas books, I think, you know, that's one person reading a book. But I think when you make something like TV or film, you have a collective audience who are seeing themselves and feeling themselves and hearing amazing things and seeing amazing things. And so I really wanted to do that. Music is at the heart of Champion. 
and you're always listening to music. It soundtracks your writing. Do you pick music that your characters will be listening to or that suits the mood of the scene? I'm such an instinctive listener. So if I need to listen to We Will Rock You, I will just immediately listen to We Will Rock You, even if I'm in the middle of listening to something by gigs. Like I just have to listen to, to what my brain needs at that time. When I'm writing, I like to listen to something that's going to energise me. So that's a lot of the time that is rap and that is grime. But sometimes it can be the West Side Story score because that's also so jumpy and so bright and so fun. But I was in loads of um, choirs and vocal consults when I was at school. That was one of the things that got me out of trouble. And so I have a really good musical ear and I really like, like an orchestra is always going to be my thing. It's inspirational. Yeah. You know, I, I speak as somebody who was a chorister in a cathedral choir oh, as a child. Best. And that kind of informs you for the rest of your life. It does. Singing, is, I think, is such a release. And to do that in a collective way and to do it with different parts and to do it with different sounds and different harmonies, to hear what you're creating with a set of people, I don't think there's anything like that. That's, I think, why I'm so collaborative. I prefer collaboration to sort of isolated writing. I was in musicals as well. I've always been like a musical head, but I won't do that again because I like to be behind every camera. I don't ever want to be on the stage again. But it was fun for what it was. And it taught me so much about working with people and reaching a common goal. It's rather interesting because it's a rare thing to step back from performing. Hmm. And you have. Uh, and you're perfectly happy about having done so. I was never a performer. I like to do it, but I have never liked any kind of limelight. I've always found that very difficult. I don't like being perceived. So like even things like this, it's great because I get to talk to you. But also it's like, oh my gosh, I'm having to talk to someone and be recorded. Whoa, it's <laughs> huge. And then listened to by rather a large number of people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I just don't think about that. I'll just leave here and not think about it. You brought in other writers for Champion. Yes, I loved it. Um, I did a writer's room also for Queenie. And both of those experiences were incredible. Because the first one, though, was in lockdown. So, again, I went from being kind of by myself, because also I live by myself, was living by myself, I love living by myself. And so you go from being by yourself to like then kind of seeing, you know, a couple of friends here and there, as the law required. And then, because I stuck to the law, um, and then being on Zoom with nine people and being like, okay, so Aria's restaurant, what do we think about that? Do you know what I mean? And having to like get story. And that was so fun because it was like seeing how different people's minds worked. And we had one person who was really good at being like, okay, what if we go to the most insane place? Another person who was good at being like, okay, but what if we bring that down? Another person who was like, okay, I'm going to suggest something quite dark here. Another person who was so good at the humour. So you just tap very quickly into who's really amazing at what and draw that out of them. And also keep reminding everyone, every idea is a good idea. We're all just making something from scratch. We can all just say what we want. But these persons you tapped, yes. how did you find them in the first place? One of them was a friend, is a friend of mine. So I'd worked with her before and I'd seen her work and I'd loved her work. Another one, I'd just seen him on Twitter, just one of those sort of random, he'd said something about writing. I'd gone on his Twitter. He was from Jamaica, but he was living here. And he was, I don't know, I just something about me was like, just like bookmark this person. And another one was found by the production company and I read her work and I was like, yeah, amazing. I'd love her to join us. And then our assistant, Edem, he was there to take notes, to kind of, be like, okay, this is what you lot are saying. This is what you're doing. And 
I would always encourage him to get involved because I was like, you're here, so like, talk to us. Mm. Um, and then he did and I was like, he's very smart, isn't he? Mm. And then by the end, I was like, he has to write an episode, like he has to own one himself because he's good. But this is interesting because this requires generosity in you because, hell, you're in charge. It's your project. It's yeah. your... And you're allowing somebody else to be the originator of something you haven't written. Of course. But then it ends up being very collaborative anyway, mm. because as mm. soon as the writers go, you're like, okay, how do we make this mm. sound like everything else? But I just loved his ideas and I loved how his mind works. And I still work I still work very closely with him now. Anytime I need a work favour, he's the person that I call. But he's just 25 and just one of the smartest people that I've ever met. But I think you have to be generous in this game because everyone has to eat. Do you know what I mean? Like, this isn't about me being like, right, I'm in quickly. Let me just close the door behind me. There's no way. We have to be here. We all have to be here. So if I can help do that, then I will. I'm interested in your creative use of star signs <laughs> as a framework when you're developing characters. Let's take the two siblings at the heart of Champion. Mm -hmm. What are their traits? Uh, so Bosco is a Leo which is weird because Malcolm is actually Leo too. So very, very there, very present, very vocal, very central to everything, very generous, very loving, but they do not always know how to get that across. Also, a Leo is a fire sign and they they burn very brightly. And Vita is a Scorpio. She is a water sign. She is quite discreet. She is quite secretive. She's quite behind the scenes, very creative. So it makes sense that you would have this creative undercurrent flowing in the background of this bright lion. But of course, every single person, despite what their star sign traits are, they always have a kind of dark side, a shadow self, and only Vita sees Bosco's. That chimes with the family dynamics, which are foundations to your work. We see them play out in Champion, but as the series unfolds, you also share backstories. Can you tell me about Bear's champion? Because although he's a bit of a villain, you clearly have empathy for the way he's been brought up. Yeah, and I think that with all of my characters, you know, they get a lot of stick, but I'm like, no one just wakes up and decides to be awful. No one decides to be an awful person. It's how you're raised. It's your nurturing. Um, That's something people need to know much more. I've never been under the idea that people just, yeah, wake up mean and they decide to be mean, you know? Mm. And I think that obviously I've had a lot of mean people in my life and my family, but I'm like, okay, I kind of, to an extent, understand where that comes from. But that doesn't mean that I have to then carry that on, you know? Mm. Um, but Bear is champion, yes, he had a very, his upbringing was hard and it was rough and it was void of any emotion and he wasn't ever allowed to be emotional and his dad you know he says really early on we see in the beginning of episode six his dad throws a machete into the ground and he says you have to make people fear you and if you take that on as a child and you're raised with that then there's not really any space for you to be kind and loving and supportive even if you want to be because you've been told from childhood that's not how we do things that's not the way to be and I think that everyone has grown with this idea of how they should be and at a point in their life it just sticks and it stays there. We also have an incredible role model in Lennox, yeah, the stepfather. Yes. Can you tell me about him? 
Have you had a lot of people telling you that they love this character? Yes. Oh my God, everyone always, justice for Lennox is what I hear all the time. Um, Lennox is an incredible character. And also, you know, there is this idea that kids with, you know, like they're, they're raised by single moms. They're really, really bad people. And it's like, I want to give these kids two dads. And you can see that even with two dads, no one is perfect. Do you know what I mean? You can have two and you can still end up in prison and you can still end up doing the wrong thing. But Lennox is, he, we needed a counter to Berries. I want all of my characters to have a place and conflict and a feeling. And even though Arya is a mum, she still has a life and she still has prospects. You know, she's a gorgeous woman and she still has these two men who are like, you know, I still want her, I still desire her. And so, you know, Berries is there and Berries is her ex-husband and he has never been consistent. And so she has a man now who is consistent, but she still has a lot of love for the man who is the father of her kids. But Lennox is named after Lennox Lewis because that is one of those names that was like, I grew up sort of having in my household when I was a kid and it stuck in my head. But he needed to be everything that Berries isn't. He needed to be dependable and reliable and kind and loving. And if we ever looked into Berries's backstory, he does not have a dad who is throwing a machete in the ground and saying, you need to make people fear you. He's not that person. It's extraordinary because we're sort of piecing together the jigsaw puzzle that is the process. Can we also talk about Dawn, Bosco's agent? Did you enjoy <laughs> writing her? She has some of the funniest moments, but is also someone you grow rather fond of. Yeah, so Dawn reminds me of all of my really nice aunties that I've <laughs> ever had. She's a bit useless as a music manager, but she's a very loving person and a very kind person and probably spends a lot of time focusing on the wrong things. And so one thing that we thought would be good for Dawn is that she's always just kind of eating food. So when we first see her, she's eating a peach and she's rolling the peach stone around her mouth because she's concentrating on that and she's not concentrating on the fact that Bosco has been arrested. And so you can't ever dislike someone like that. Her foundation is that she's nice. She's nice. There's no other way to put it, really. She's really nice. There's no malice in her. But yeah, she likes her food. And Joe Martin brought her to life in a way that I could never have anticipated. She was the person that I was like, if she ad-libs, you don't have to run that past me. <laughs> but everyone else, I was like, how does that sound? Does that work? Does it work? Okay, fine. But with Joe, I was like, she can do what she wants. Strikes me that one or two of these people may have recognised themselves in one or two of the pieces you've written. Yeah, maybe. That's okay, though. They've never stopped you and said, was that me? No, my auntie, who passed away in January, she asked me if Auntie Maggie in Queenie, she was like, is that me? And I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> you. And so actually filming Queenie has been difficult because uh, Auntie Maggie, played by Michelle Greenidge, is an incredible person, but it's just been a reminder constantly of my aunt that I lost. Um, mm. And I told Michelle that, I said, this is based on my auntie Susie, so please do her proud. And she was like, I absolutely will. And she has. Authenticity was important to you. You spoke to people from the music industry. Did their stories surprise you or did it feel all too familiar? We see a lot of white gatekeepers on screen in the record label boardroom and, well, at showcases. Yes. I mean, as we said earlier, that is kind of the way of this industry, right? Mm. And my editors as well and people in my production houses are under no illusion that they are white and they are the gatekeepers of... You know, when I get money, when I get paid, the work I do. But I think their thing is to be as collaborative as possible with me. There's no secrets around it. We discuss that very openly. Um, but in the music industry, 
what I've recognised is that that kind of collaboration mm. isn't always the case. And when we had the Writers' Room for Champion, we had a lot of musicians come in, sign NDAs, have really frank conversations about what they'd been through. And a lot of the time, we couldn't even replicate that for the show because it would be it, just, it would just seem too farcical mm. and seem too unreal because a lot of trust is put into these people because you're working at a top agency, you're working at a top management company and you actually aren't there to look after people. You're there to get what you want. Um, and that's really, really hard. It was really hard to hear some of those things. A lot of time we were in tears listening to what people were going through. It sounds rather brutal. It's really brutal. I think with most creative industries, because there's not like a body to regulate it, a lot of mad stuff happens. You also explore mental health through the mm. pressures of the music industry. The impact of prison and policing and the pressure on black men to be strong is this a subject that is very important to you? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think it's black men to be strong, but also for black people in general to be strong. The strong black woman trope is why I wrote Queenie, mm. because that had been plaguing me for my entire life. I remember being a kid and, you know, even in my family, just being told, like, well, don't cry about it. Like, why are you crying? Like, you're meant to be strong. It's fine. And I was like, whoa, I'm a child. I'm crying because I'm sad. Um, and I'm someone who is just naturally very emotional, very sad. And I've always been okay with that, but other people weren't. And I had to force myself to be strong for loads and loads of years. And I had, like, what I think was probably a nervous breakdown when I was 23, because I was like, I've got too much inside me and I've been holding it all down for years of my life. And then as soon as I let it go, I didn't stop crying for about two and a half years, didn't leave the house. It was really, really unwell and had to do all types of therapy and CBT and all of that stuff to kind of get me back on track again. What age was this? Uh, 22 to 25, Gosh. 26. Um, so yeah, it was really tough. It was really, I don't, I look back on it quite fondly because I got through it and it was hard and it, it means that I can kind of handle anything now mm -hmm. uh, because I went through And live with hell. anything you write. Yeah, precisely. Um, and so, yeah, so I was like, yeah, that was difficult, but very formative. And yes, the idea of black strength, I think it's just a huge myth. And I think that a lot of people benefit from that. Because if you see me as strong, then you can put everything on me, can't you? In Champion, the characters creep into your heart as the story develops. Do you become emotionally attached to them? Do the things that happen to them as you're writing take a toll on you? Absolutely. I love every single one of them, even Beres. I do. They're really important to me. And I have to know them and I have to love them and know their motivations and why they do things to believe in them and to believe what they do. For example, in episode one, Aria comes out and she brings a plate of food and she says, Bosco, this is for you, Vita. You weren't hungry, were you? And Vita is like, uh, okay, fine. What if I was? And the director was like, I just don't think, I think that's a bit mean. And I was like, it is mean, but that's what she has to do because I believe that that's how she feels. And we are going to reveal as we get into it why she has done that thing. But you have to... Trust me. There was, there's a lot of like trust the process because I know why these characters are doing these things and you have to know them and they have to live in you. And so all my characters are very easy for me. I just think of them and then they just live in my head forever and ever and ever. Queenie's never gone from my head. They all live in there. Very well, busy head. That's just as well because Champion ends with a big dramatic moment that many will want to see resolved. Is there going to be a second series? Have you stored all that up in your head and can you now... Deliver. If there is a second series, I know exactly what would happen, like very easily. It would be very easy for me to write. To make it would be the hard thing. 
But I know that family, I know that world very well, and the music. I love it all, I know it all. So you might well write something akin to resolution. I don't know, because I just think resolution is quite boring, isn't it? You just oh. want to, I just always want to blow things up. <laughs> is it blowable up? I think so. Let's see. Watch stand the space. by, stand by. <laughs> when does it get onto Netflix? Um, are you excited about reaching an international audience, shining a light on the black British music scene that you love so much? And the talent involved in the production. Yes, absolutely. So Netflix, it's a big global drop in January, which I think we're all really excited about. Mm. Because yes, it's about like South London to the world. It's about like, you know, showing everyone what we can do. And also everyone in Jamaica is like desperate for it. Because obviously like we went there and we filmed a whole episode. We were there for weeks. Um, mm. And so they're like, hi, when can we see it? And so that would be nice. But also the US. And I'm interested in... I like a lot of US music. I'm definitely, as we know, like a sort of, like not just South London because the music that I love is from all around, but also I'm really interested in us having our own music scene in the UK, like Birmingham, incredible music, Manny, incredible music. And so it's about us being like, yeah, this is what we've got. So the Americans, it'd be good for them to see what we're, what we're working with. You know, it's something amazing. This is such a contrast from the political interviews I used to do in my former <laughs> life. And you are so energised and so excited by what you are doing. Yeah. And that is very, very rewarding. Thank you. But it's about, and it's, thank you for having me, but it's also about, um, I love it because I believe in it and I love that I've been able to do this, you know. And I've, there's been a lot of fights and there's been a lot of stress and there's been a lot of having to, you know, back my corner, but... I think I'm very persuasive, so I think it's worked, but it's because I care, and that's why. I wouldn't do this if I didn't care so much. Are you missing writing novels? I am and I'm I'm not. I'm going to write another one. I need to do that soon, because my editors are tapping their watches. And you know what um, it is? I do. Mm-hmm. I do. And I think, you know, it's a familiar face, which is nice, um, because it's a person that I've missed very much. But I love the collaboration of TV. Hmm. I really do. That's really exciting to me. It's really exciting to sit with a music producer. It's really exciting to sit with a set designer. It's really exciting to sit with a composer. Quite a contrast from writing a novel. Yeah, because you're sitting by yourself all the time. But you've got a, a novel burning a hole in you. I do. But I always do. I could always write, John. Like That's the thing that I know that I can do, you know, of all things. How exciting. Can I say what a joy it's been to talk with you? Thank you, and you too. Thank you very, very much. That was the very talented Candice Carty-Williams. If you want to enjoy more from Candice, there are links to her books and her BBC series, Champion, in the episode description. I'm Jon Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be back later this week with the RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch, who's at the very heart of the current rail dispute. So please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.